Welcome back to The Shaping of the Modern World. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This podcast series supports my course, The Shaping of the Modern World. Today, Imperial Conquest, the First Globalization, and the Columbian Exchange. We start with a cartoon, a Chinese television series first broadcast in 2015. The series is The Fragrant Princess. You'll recall from the first episode that by the 1400s, significant parts of the world had become connected by trade, religion, and conquest. But the entire world was still divided into regions that were largely independent of each other. There was contact and exchange, but not on a truly global scale. But over the next 300 years, the world became truly globalized. In the period from the late 1400s through the middle of the 1700s, formerly separate regions of the world became interconnected to an extent never seen in human history. The most distinctive feature of this first globalization was the expansion and creation of enormous empires in Asia, Russia, the Middle East, the Caribbean, and the Americas. The empires that expanded or came into existence in this period have either disappeared or have evolved into multi-ethnic nation-states. Today, we live in a world of independent nation-states. 193 currently belong to the United Nations. So it's easy to assume that the nation-state model is somehow normal. Looked at historically, however, this model is a relatively new development. A much more common form of political, social, and economic organization has been the empire. Okay, so what does all this have to do with a Chinese cartoon show? Global empires shaped the modern world decisively. And even though they are now gone, we still live with their legacies. Let's take an example from just one of these multi-ethnic nation-states, the People's Republic of China. From 1680 to 1760, Qing Dynasty China expanded into Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Tibet. See the map on slide two of the accompanying PowerPoint presentation. The empire built in this 80-year period created the borders of today's China. As of 2017, there are around 1.4 billion people in the People's Republic of China. The Chinese government recognizes 56 different ethnic groups. Several dozen languages and dialects are spoken. China is officially atheist, but there are Buddhists, Muslims, Christians, and a variety of folk religions, Hindus, and Taoists. One of these regions is Xinjiang, which means New Frontier in Mandarin Chinese. It was conquered in the 1700s. The region was dominated by a Turkic language-speaking ethnic group, the Uyghurs. Most are Sunni Muslim. At first, the Chinese Empire did not attempt to settle large numbers of ethnic Han Chinese in Xinjiang, but that changed. The dominant population is now Han Chinese. Over about a 50-year period from 1949 to 1996, the percentage of Han Chinese in Xinjiang increased from 6.7% to 40%. In recent years, there has been a great deal of tension between local Chinese, Uyghurs, and the Chinese government. In 2015, with the support of the Chinese government, a Chinese production company based in Shenzhen produced an animated series, Princess Fragrant. 
The purpose was not only to entertain children, but to promote ethnic harmony between Han and Uyghurs. Now, the fragrant princess story is well known in Xinjiang and in China, but there are two versions. In China, she is known as Yang Fei, or fragrant concubine, and she is a popular cultural icon, an exotic and beautiful female warrior. There have been lots of references to the legend in contemporary Chinese culture, other TV shows, poems, plays, video games, a line of perfume, appropriately enough, and a chain of roast chicken restaurants. Today, the Chinese government offers an official interpretation of the legend. And it goes like this. In the 1700s, Zhang Fei was a member of the Uyghur imperial court. But she was so sweetly fragrant that she caught the attention of the emperor, some 2,700 miles away in Beijing. He was entranced and invited her to live with him in the imperial capital. When she died, the emperor ordered 120 men to accompany her body back to Kashgar. The journey took three years, and she was supposedly buried in a tomb which still stands, and as you might imagine, it's become a tourist attraction. The Fragrant Princess cartoon series reflects the Chinese government's official position that there has been a long history of good relations between Han Chinese and other ethnic groups. In the series, the princess is 10 years old, she, her brother, and their Han and Kazakh friends have to rescue the princess's father from, what else, a greedy Western explorer. This is how the director has described the series, and I'm quoting. It shows that ethnic unity is the most powerful weapon in the face of adversity. The princess and her friends also encounter other ethnicities and cultures, and they learn that only by helping each other can you go far in life. You can watch a preview to the series by following the link on the Blackboard announcements page. Okay, as you might imagine, there is a Uyghur version of the story that is very different from the official Chinese version. First, she was known not as Yang Fei, but as Ipar Khan. Second, she wasn't invited to live with the emperor. She was a war trophy and a sex slave who either committed suicide or was murdered by the emperor's mother. Third, historians and many Uyghurs do not believe she is buried in Kashgar. Well, regardless of whose version you believe, the situation in recent years in Xinjiang has become extremely tense. Many Uyghurs accused Han Chinese and the Chinese government of discriminating against them and of trying to suppress Uyghur culture, including suppressing Islam. Part of this is in response to a series of violent incidents, some of which involved Uyghurs attacking Chinese. In March 2014, a group of Uyghurs attacked passengers in a train station in Kunming, killing 31 and wounding 141. The current Chinese leader, Xi Jinping, called for a harsh crackdown. The official response was called Strike Hard Campaign Against Violent Terrorism. The Chinese government has also vastly increased the incarceration and surveillance of Uyghurs. It seems the main reason is to make the Uyghur population more subservient to the CCP, or Chinese Communist Party. I asked you to read a recent story from the New York Times about the experiences of one Uyghur family 
and how the Chinese government is trying, more generally, to control the Uyghur population, in part by using some old methods of imperial control, and in part by developing high-tech methods of surveillance. This is a subject we'll return to later in the course. So, China today is a nation-state. Is it also an empire? Or at least acting like one? Before I discuss the world's major empires, let me say something quickly about terminology. An empire is a form of rule by a single sovereign authority over multiple territories, peoples, nations, or states. Often, but not always, that sovereign authority is an emperor. Okay, this is a pretty bare-bones definition. In reality, emperors, empires are incredibly complex entities. They are characterized by much more than the domination of one people by another. Modern empires have been vast sites of exchange and interaction, much of it violent and exploitative, but much of it not. On the accompanying PowerPoint presentation, you can see historical maps of the empires I'm about to discuss. First up is China. Like most empires, the Chinese Empire of the Qing Dynasty was a contiguous, contiguous land empire, not an overseas empire. Why didn't the Chinese expand their empire into the Indian Ocean? They certainly had the ability. In 1405, the Chinese amassed the largest fleet of ships the world had ever seen or would see for another 500 years. Over 300 ships, manned by 27,000 sailors, assembled in the mouth of the Yangtze River on the eastern coast of China. The largest of these ships was a nine-masted monster ship about 400 feet long and 160 feet wide. The fleet was commanded by Admiral Zheng He, a Muslim and a member of the ethnic Hui minority group. He had been given three tasks by the emperor. One, track down the former emperor. Two, demonstrate to the world China's power and wealth. And three, develop overseas trade. Zheng commanded seven two-year voyages between 1405 and 1433. Of his fleet's more than 300 ships, 30 were designated treasure boats. They set sail with gifts, gold, silver, porcelain, silks, and returned with precious stones, ivory, artwork, and even exotic animals, like a giraffe from Africa. Today in the city of Nanjing, there is the Treasure Boat Shipyard Site Park. It's built on the site where Zheng He oversaw the construction of his massive fleet. The park opened in 2005 on the 600th anniversary of Zheng's first expedition. Nanjing was at that time the capital city of the Ming Dynasty, and it was also from Nanjing that Zheng set sail. The park includes a full-scale replica of one of the ships in Zheng's fleet, a treasure boat. The celebration of Zheng's memory in China today involves more than historical pride and attracting tourists. Since 2010, the Chinese government has intensified searches for the remains of Zheng's fleet, mainly by using advanced sonar systems and submersible vehicles to search possible sailing routes around Asia, the Middle East, and Africa for shipwrecks. China's leader, Xi Jinping, has referred to Zheng as a friendly emissary who led 
treasure-loaded ships to build a bridge for peace and east-west cooperation. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to see how Xi is trying to link the memory of Zheng's voyages, which were mostly peaceful, to China's Belt and Road Initiative, a massive project of Chinese investment and infrastructure building abroad. Well, back in 1433, the emperor suddenly ended the expeditions and allowed the great fleet to rot away. Why did he do that? The main reason has to do with a struggle within the emperor's court over where China's strategic interests lay. Some wanted the voyages to continue. Others thought the real problem was the threat posed by the Mongols to China's north. But the emperor died in 1435, and those in favor of focusing on securing the north won the argument. They concluded that expanding the Great Wall of China north of the new capital of Beijing was a higher priority than building more ships and launching more voyages, which were not cheap. But there's another important factor. The emperor did not authorize Zheng to spread any religion or conquer any territory. And since no single state or empire dominated the larger Indian Ocean trading region, there was nothing preventing Chinese merchants from doing business there. And they did. So the Qing Dynasty then expanded into Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Tibet, less for economic reasons than for security reasons. In the process, they created the borders of today's China. Unlike other empires, the Russian, for example, Qing Dynasty rulers did not send huge numbers of ethnic Chinese settlers into these regions. At least, not at first. Next is the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was unique in that it built upon the remains of a pre-existing empire, that of Dar al-Islam, or the abode of Islam. By the 15th century, the Islamic world was not an empire in the usual sense of the term. A series of Islamic dynasties tried to retain control over the entire abode of Islam, but by the mid-1200s, the Islamic world was fracturing into four empires. One was the Ottoman, now the Turkish Republic. Another was the Safavid, which became the Persian Empire, then Iran, or now Iran. Third, the Mughal Empire, modern India. And fourth, the Songhai in West Africa. Well, who are the Ottomans? The Ottomans were originally Turkic language-speaking bands of nomadic warriors who forged themselves into a political and religious empire. Religious because Ottoman rulers claimed to represent and lead the world's Sunni Muslims. By the early 1500s, the Ottoman Empire controlled all of the Middle East, including the three holiest cities of Islam. It controlled what is today Turkey. It controlled most of southeastern Europe and it controlled most of North Africa. It had become an empire of some 20 to 30 million people. Ottoman emperors, or sultans, established the imperial capital in Istanbul. They built a highly sophisticated bureaucracy and a military force capable of acquiring new territory and enforcing obedience to the sultan. Conversion to Islam was pursued but the empire was remarkably tolerant. It did not force others to assimilate. 
by, say, learning the Turkish language. And small Christian and Jewish communities thrived. Like other empires, however, maintaining control over distant provinces where local rulers might feel free to do as they please and not pay taxes was a persistent problem that would eventually weaken the empire. Next is the Mughal Empire that dominated what is today India. The Mughal Empire is an interesting cultural and religious hybrid. The ruling dynasty was Muslim, and the majority of the population was Hindu. Rather than attempt conversion, like Europeans and Russians, Mughal emperors practiced religious and cultural tolerance, at least for a while. But growing Hindu resistance to Muslim rule would be one factor that weakened the empire. Another issue was that by the end of the 1600s, Muslim Mughal emperors had taken control of all of India, but regional rulers became increasingly effective at resisting imperial control. They were receptive to trading with Europeans with two important long-term implications. One, the authority of the emperor was further eroded. And two, Europeans, first the Portuguese, then the Dutch, and the British became an increasingly powerful presence in India. Another massive transcontinental empire was built in this period, stretching from Eastern Europe across Northern Asia to the Pacific Ocean, the Russian Empire. Its expansion was made possible by the disappearance of the Mongol Empire and the fact that Northern Asia was sparsely settled by nomadic tribes. Here, the main motivation was economic, particularly the demand for the pelts of fur-bearing animals. Russian expansion did involve the large-scale settlement of ethnic Russians. Native peoples were gradually absorbed in a process known as Russification. Russification entailed, first, the adoption of the Russian language, second, conversion to Christianity, and third, acceptance of the authority of the Russian emperor, or czar. Finally, we come to the Spanish and Portuguese empires and the Columbian Exchange. In terms of the worldwide distribution of economic and military power, Europe in the 1400s was something of a backwater. If there was an economic center of the world at this time, it was the greater Indian Ocean region and China and it certainly was not Europe. Increasingly, two kingdoms, Spain and Portugal, became determined to break into the rich trading networks and markets of Asia and the wider Indian Ocean trading region. The question was how? The growing strength of the Ottoman Empire made going overland through the Middle East impossible. Now, Portuguese sailors did sail around the African continent, and did enter well-established Indian Ocean networks. They were not strong enough, however, to establish large colonies. But then in 1492, everything changed. That year, Christopher Columbus reached the Caribbean island of San Salvador, now part of the Bahamas. Columbus was a sailor from the city-state of Genoa in what is today Italy. He was commissioned by the King and Queen of Spain to search for a way to reach Asia without having to sail around Africa. Instead, he and succeeding waves of conquerors found seemingly limitless land and natural resources, and also souls to be saved. 
But make no mistake, the main motivation to conquer colonies was not spiritual, but economic. In the age before modern capitalism, the dominant economic model was known as mercantilism. Mercantilism assumed, first of all, that the world's wealth was a fixed quantity. Second, mercantilist mindset saw colonies uh, as spaces to be exploited for natural resources, especially gold and silver, and to serve as closed markets for the mother country's manufactured goods. Hence, European states saw the opportunity in grabbing what they could in the Western Hemisphere and going to war with each other for control of territory was part of the bargain. The form of Portuguese and Spanish imperial rule was first developed on Hispaniola, now Haiti and the Dominican Republic, from 1492 to 1519. The mother country granted special grants to conquerors called encomiendas, which authorized them to coerce labor from native peoples mainly in mining operations. In return, the conquerors would pay a tax to the crown while also reaping huge profits. They soon formed the basis for the ruling political and economic class in the colonies, the encomenderos. Conquerors then set their sights on mainland Central and South America. The chief weapon of conquest was disease. Europeans exposed indigenous peoples to diseases to which they had built up no immunity. The results were catastrophic and changed the human geography of the Caribbean and the Americas. The mortality rates among indigenous peoples were staggering. See the chart on the PowerPoint presentation. Now, the Europeans also had to fight in the more traditional manner to conquer the two most significant American empires of the time, the Aztecs and the Incas, and here the main advantage for the Europeans was technological. The importance of the European conquest of the Americas to the shaping of the modern world cannot be overstated. Control over vast territory and natural resources made it possible for a handful of European states, first Spain and Portugal, then England and France, to transform Europe from an economic backwater to a global imperial superpower. Together, they had created the world's first transoceanic empire and permanently altered the human and natural environments of nearly half the planet. Historians call the transfer of people, crops, animals, and disease to and from the Western Hemisphere in this period the Columbian Exchange. The empire became triangular in shape, linking Europe, the Western Hemisphere, and then Africa. When it reached into Asia, it became truly globalized. The massively profitable trade in a handful of commodities, silver, sugar, fur pelts, and eventually cotton, would create the first truly globalized system of trade. As we'll see, this globalized trade network became dependent on coerced labor, first indigenous peoples, and then millions of slaves from Africa. So here's how the globalized network of empires worked by the late 1500s when it came to one of the most valuable commodities, silver. Well, why was silver so valuable? Silver was imported to Spain because it helped fund Spain's multiple wars in Europe. 
But mainly, silver was important because of Chinese demand. The Chinese had made silver the basis of its currency. From 1500 to 1800, three quarters of all silver mined in the Americas ended up in China. There were huge deposits of silver in Mexico and Western Bolivia. The biggest source was at Potosi, discovered in 1545. Potosi was mined by Indians in atrocious conditions. Historians estimate that in the 300 years the mine was in operation, seven out of every 10 Indians working in the mines died, a total of around 8 million people and about 30,000 African slaves were forced to work in the mines. By the 1670s, Potosi had a population of 200,000 and was one of the richest cities in the world. When Bolivia declared independence in 1825, the silver had mostly run out, but tin is still mined there. And the work is still dangerous. Miners keep alive an old tradition. They make offerings of alcohol and tobacco to El Tio the uncle, a god of the underworld who supposedly holds the power of life or death between his fingers. So how was silver circulated? At first it was shipped back across the Atlantic. But in 1571, Spain conquered the Philippines. That meant that the Spanish had opened another route from the Western Hemisphere to Asia. That made it possible to ship silver from Acapulco in Mexico, which was also controlled by Spain, across the Pacific to Manila, the great capital port city of the Philippines, and then onto China. One result is the creation of what you might argue was the world's first global currency, the Spanish Peace of Eight, which was accepted by merchants around the world. In the next episode, I'll talk about the transatlantic slave trade and the legacies of slavery in the contemporary United States. Thanks for listening. Be well and take care of each other.